You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 151 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers and research of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan and David Howe. Well, everyone, I'm about to go on a trip to the Dominican Republic to do some underwater archaeology, and we're going to learn about the process of doing archaeology, but under the sea. So hit the decks as we're hitting underwater archaeology with the Baraja Cannon Fire. That's good, Connor. I like that. That was good. Yeah. Okay. You know, I can do some stuff sometimes. So so caveat, I've only dipped my toes into this world. I've completed the course. I'm all certified. You're a now faker. I, now I just got to get in, get in the water and actually look at some real shit in the ocean. Because I've done it in the pool, about 10 feet deep, mapped some things. And uh, let me tell you, I think the hardest part about underwater archaeology is being scuba certified. What does scuba stand for, Carlton? I've never known. What, the acronym SCUBA? Yes. SCUBA is an acronym that stands for Self-Contained Underwater Breathing Apparatus. Do you have to look that up? Yes. Are you certified? Yeah. <laughs> Patty certified. <laughs> Patty certified. <laughs> Ten-year-olds can pass the Patty exam. It's not super difficult. And like to calculate all of the, you know, depth tables, all you have to do is P1 times V1 equals P2 times V2. Is that pressure and volume? Pressure and volume. So, okay. Increasing volume, increasing pressure. Has too much yeah, math, that would suffocate. It's pretty easy. <laughs> but everyone has dive computers anyways. I got involved in this. I don't think we've mentioned it much on the podcast, but Indiana University has a top-ranked underwater archaeology program. For whatever reason, Indiana is not landlocked. It does share a little bit of the Great Lakes. And so the program here not only works on the Great Lakes itself, but they have a very large ongoing project with other departments in the Caribbean. So Florida, Dominican Republic are the are the big two that they do. And once I found out about the program, I just kind of swung by and they were in need of a professor to sign off on things and be a part of the project. And so their attitude was it's much easier to make an archaeologist into a scuba diver than a scuba diver into an archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that program isn't directly a part of the anthropology program. It's, it's super weird. So there are anthropology undergraduates in there. And so at, at, here at IU, you have to minor in something. So if you want to be an underwater archaeologist, they either double major or they minor in underwater arc. But if you get in good with the program director, Charles Beaker, once you're like part of his little crew, he like goes above and beyond for his students. So like many of the undergraduates not only get chances at doing research, making publications, but if they're scuba certified, like a lot of them have their master diver certifications. Wow. And so like as undergrads, they're teaching underwater courses on scuba diving through PADI. So like it's kind of a very interesting system where those kids basically begin to run the underwater science program, even as undergraduates and as masters and PhD students, they even go further. So he's created like quite this system in which he trains these students up and gets them not only the dives in, but the publication credentials. Like he has a lab meeting like every Tuesday for like two hours. And he sits there and is like, you guys are going to work on this abstract. You guys are going to work on this grant. And it gets them hands-on experience in professionalism. That's kind of wild that they come out with like a, an actual professional certification. Because I mean, you can like as, as we do in archaeology, you get you do a field school and you can kind of be seen as like I can do field tech stuff. But you don't really get like a cert, cert like yeah. this. Yeah. 
Yeah. And they developed their own. There's only a couple of these in the country. Scientific diver certificate. And that's what I'm working on. So you get credited as a scientific diver to do this stuff. So like all my pool work and then my dives this coming weekend and then the field project that I'm going on in May, which I'll be down there for three weeks. All those go towards my certifications. And then as I'm like diving more and more, since all of the students, including some that I'm on like committees for, like some of these students that like are teaching me are my students. Since they're all certified, I can get my advanced certification through them as we as we work. Are you familiar with the Kelp Highway hypothesis? Yeah, yes, David, I am. Hmm. Nope, tell me. Are you familiar with the fact that a lot of Paleo-Indian sites may be submerged off the coasts? Yeah, I've thought about that quite heavily. And so, Are you aware that you have a PhD and you're an indigenous archaeologist and you're about to have a scuba certification? And are you aware that you've actively said that I don't want to do Paleo-Indian archaeology? You know what you're lined up to do, Carlton? <laughs> Prove us all wrong. <laughs> Go do it. You're on a goddamn crash course. <laughs> well, well, the whole the whole impetus for this is like I want to go and dive reservoirs in uh, Nebraska and Kansas that were dammed up in the 30s, and during those um, site surveys in the 30s, they might have many of times only excavated like one or two hamlets and there's like a whole valley of archaeology. And for me, it's a question of not only being able to get in there and see what's going on, but also to see the taphonomic processes that have taken place now that those sites are submerged. And since they're submerged, they haven't been affected like any of the other ones that are now farmed up. So like that's kind of my impetus and how I got into this is like they're teaching me so then I can go and take some of these students with me and go do these dives in Nebraska and Kansas. Like the next step though, is I have to get cold water certified, which we're doing in a couple weeks because the best time to dive Nebraska and Kansas where there's like more visibility than like three inches is like January. Also, there's less, you know, like harmful chemicals and manure in the water. So, Mm. but uh, I have thought about David doing some underwater arc in Southeast Alaska or Northwest coast. I've like Googled it a little bit. People do do it. It's just really inhospitable. Like it's not Why a not fun. the Chesapeake Bay? If we don't want to go get that mammoth, that, that <laughs> Chesapeake mammoth or mastodon, that's highly protected. No, I've thought about it. It would be, a, it's a great tool for my toolbox. Yeah. And it's but just I, fun. And I told Connor and David, you, if you guys get certified, there's no reason why I can't just like take you because as we talk about later, there's not much precision excavation that happens in underwater archaeology just photos and notes <laughs> uh, a lot of notes a lot of measurements and prior research especially like all the caribbean stuff is historical archaeology right like they're as we'll talk about in a bit looking at shipwrecks so there's a lot of preemptive research i'm trying to figure out where some of these things went down but since you can do photogrammetry just by swimming that's kind of the main impetus is doing like 3D models of these sites, mapping the art objects before that's pretty cool pulling them out. Uh, okay, question. I guess how does one do photogrammetry? Are you do you have a camera on you and you stop and take pictures periodically, or how, or is it automatically taking pictures? How how does that work? Are so you, you a take, Chinese you take spy a, balloon underwater? You take <laughs> you take a GoPro and you like make a rig for it and you set the GoPro to take a photo every three seconds, and you just like. Swim at the same rate at the same level, and you just do transects. And you just do the you're the drone in the water. You're you're the drone in the water. That's it. Someone someone at the SHAs when I was with Charlie was asking like, "Have you ever thought about doing drones?" He's like, "Why when I have students who can swim?" 
It's like, why would I spend this much money to do that? That cost battery when I can just have students go do it. So are there any issues with like refraction and shit like that? Or is there like an adjustment that could be made on? Cause like, I mean, if you're already underwater, it can be an issue. Yeah, yeah. already underwater. So there's no real refraction, but there is depending on the lens. Like if you get one of those fisheye lenses that are too wide, yeah, that'd be an issue, but it's like, you're still the kind of the same photogrammetry method where you need at least 60% overlap between photos to stitch that bitch back together. Okay. Hmm. Gotcha. What about sharks? Not where I'm going. That was question number one <laughs> when I asked, uh, but in the well, southeast part yeah, of the Dominican Nebraska. Republic. Yeah. Well, yeah, not in Nebraska, but Nebraska does pose its own risks. Not in the winter, though, but Kansas and Nebraska, those reservoirs are known for rattlesnakes. Oh, I was talking about that, but not for this time. Yep. But there is hazardous marine life in the area, mostly in the, you know, like urchins and things that sting you. Crab people. Those two. Lots of crab people. Clamsmen. I was going to say it, but you can't say it. The Clamsmen, that is a reference to Sea of Thieves and a particular enemy type that we have dubbed the Clamsmen because they're walking clams. So, like the work that I've done, by work I mean class, there's a lot of preparatory reading. There is a lot of relative chronologies of different technologies on board ships, so like the styles of cannons, going from wrought iron to cast iron, how those evolved over time, in Mm. which, like, where do you put the wheels and where does it sit on the ship? Um, That also goes with cannonballs. Wrought iron cannonballs were made out of pecked granite, so they basically fired stone balls. And once the cast iron process was created, then you can make cast iron iron, uh, balls. Ship masts and then anchors are another big indicator. So anchors change over time. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of relative chronology work to help identify ships in the water. So like Christopher Columbus's ships, which run caravels, those all had wrought iron. But after the caravels, once you actually get into like galleons, frigates, sloops, and brigs, those all have cast iron. Um, and mm-hmm. then being able to change, like track the relative age of a ship is based on the anchor because many times especially in the mediterranean or not the mediterranean sorry the caribbean most of the wood has deteriorated so you got to look for those metal artifacts hmm. Hmm. and it's, it's the same thing as like projectile points and other technologies it goes in and changes through the times pretty consistently absolutely okay yeah and we learned this historic arc too in my undergrad like you can definitely in like new england you can date old buildings just based on how the bricks are laid i never yeah. like thought about that being a thing but i imagine something just as simple would apply to ships like that. And that, that, that would make sense. Like dating the anchors and things. Cause I'm sure that tech changed. Did caravels even have anchors at that point? I feel like they anchors did. are a pretty Car- recent thing. Caravels yeah. had, had anchors. Yeah. There was some okay. pretty rudimentary anchors that they had. I think they sat outside the ship, but I'd have to double check to be honest. Caravels are really interesting because they're basically just like wooden bathtubs, the way they sat in the water with like, like a, a really a wide sail. And that's they it. Were like really bowed at the both ends. Yeah. Could you imagine making, what was it, six months across the Atlantic in that? <laughs> like, you're you basically in a longboat. <laughs> like, yeah, it's well, not, it's a lot. Yeah, but they were like bathtub shaped. They had a shallow draft keel. They had like a high foe castle and a high stern castle. So they basically just looked like bananas in the water, like just tubby bananas. It's so amazing, yeah, that people can actually could actually do that because that's not the easiest of sailing. I mean, it's not the hardest of sailing to do that that route, but it's no. They just sat high in the water. They basically just like made whatever will float. They hadn't figured out that like later ships, like galleons and frigates and stuff, they sat lower in the water. 
you know, because those like the, the futtocks of the ship towards the bottom would be extended. So you kind of have the ship round out almost like a figure eight and then come back up. Mm-hmm. Um, got a question. Yeah. So you find the shipwreck. How do you begin the process of mapping and documentation? Did they walk you through that whole process or just kind of? So wa- walking through would be a very polite way of describing the process in which they like taught us how to do this. So I'm in this underwater archaeology class. It is an undergraduate level course. I am the only archaeologist in this course. Everyone else comes from like a different science. And like most of these kids already have their like, these are like the kids are professional scuba divers. All of them. Like This is what they do. They do the kinesiology. They do underwater science. They're geologists. They're whatever. And But it would start off where it'd just be like, all right, we have, they would go to the pool. There'd be artifacts in the water. And they'd be like, okay, we need you to map them. And it was basically kind of like a trial by error where you have to go in, try to coordinate with your team. And that was the hardest part for me where it was like, I know how to do this shit. But then when you're underwater, you can't talk to anybody. So then you're trying to explain to your crew, like your teammates of like what you're trying to do. You're like trying to point at shit, like taking the tape out of their hands. And then what kept fucking me up was I'm used to taking depth measurements but we had to do like it from the surface. And mind you, like this is water, so the tape is not straight. So like all of the measurements you're doing are approximate. That tape is not getting straight, no matter <laughs> how you want to do that, right? And then like sometimes your compass won't work underwater. So you have, you're have you also trying to get like orientations of objects as best you can, doing rough sketches. And mind you, like you have, you know, underwater a clipboard, but you only get one page of that. So as you're trying to write and take notes and also trying to communicate with your team through that, that clipboard gets filled very quickly. And then if you haven't done your vocabulary and you're like staring at something and like there was a time where we didn't know what an object was and we're trying to figure it out because like none of us had done the reading or done the flashcards. So there's like this, that's the difficult part of doing this, of, of the science And to me is like, I can map, I can measure, I can do the orientations and the inclinations it's the communication part. So there is like a lot of prep work b- before it. Whereas like we've all done terrestrial archaeology. We're used to like Bob or Todd or someone or like, hey, do it this way. And then correction fixed. Whereas underwater, if you can't get the communication across, you're, you're wasting time. Right. Because you only have like two and a half, three hours of air. Hmm. And then you got to go up and you're done for the day. So like these site surveys and like excavation you're only down there for like a couple hours. And then by that time you're exhausted because you're fighting the current, you're swimming, like it's a full body ordeal. Hmm. Yeah. Damn. That's, that's wild. Is it like a lot of hand signals and like, you know, pointing at stuff or is there like a method of communication that they've like kind of established or. So there is like the patty and like underwater signals, but those are two handed. So when you're doing underwater research, you're, one of your hands is like pretty much always full. So we've had to adapt to try to use one hand. So like doing numbers has been difficult. It's not super difficult. You've got five, but then you rotate your hand like this and that's six, seven. So if you're trying to get like pressure and air gauges, you have to like, like I have, you know, two, one, nine or something of air left or basically be 2,900. And that's, Hmm. you know, that's been the most difficult part. I mean, shark is still fucking easy for everybody. But like the one that I've struggled with is like when people ask me if I'm okay, like I want to do thumbs up, but thumbs up means like go to the surface. So I have to be like that. And then like, no, 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 no. Okay. 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 Like, so there's just like goofy stuff like that. But in terms of like, how do you know sign for different objects in the water that are, there's not just like basic communication that's going to keep you alive. 
I found doubloons in the forward stern. It's just... (laughs) (laughs) That's fucking metal. Um, But, like, the projects that we we do, it's not just archaeology. Like, it's a whole underwater science field school. So we bring in archaeologists, geologists, and marine scientists, which we can get on into the next segment. So we'll be right back with episode 151. 151, Rom. Be back with the bands. Hopefully no bands. Welcome back to episode 151 of our Life Nerds podcast. I'm here with Carlton Gover, Connor Johnnan, and myself. And we're going to talk to Carlton more about his upcoming trip to the Dominican Republic. Carlton, that's where you are going, correct? That is correct, David. What will you be doing there specifically? So while I'm there for this, I leave Thursday, I get back Sunday. There's going to be two days in the water, and it's just site survey for the upcoming field school. So we're basically just going to check on the three site locations as well as get things prepped because the field school will begin basically, yeah, next month. So we fly in May 7th. So we're just meeting up with the dive shop that we work with and working with the local partners. So when we go down, the field school itself is only two weeks and then the students will leave and then I will stay with the other project PIs and graduate students and we're going to be doing some more advanced stuff which I'm not quite sure what that means yet for an additional week but Charlie's curated such good relationships one of the sites that they excavated made an underwater a living uh, museum in the sea is in the boundaries of a resort's property line in the water they own part of the ocean and so he helped create this and it's a major tourist attraction and place to dive like many of the sites are and so when it's just the pi time we're staying at a resort for free (laughs) (laughs) and like the the one the place that we're staying with field school is somewhere similar it's not a resort but it is a local like hotel that has food and stuff so like we're taking full advantage of that but there are no days off like it is just straight work for 21 days. Basically, we have breakfast at the hotel or the resort. We get on the boat. We drive out to site or sail out to site. We don't sail. It's driving because it's a like dinghy. And then uh, in the water for a couple hours, come out, go to lunch, and then write reports and object object uh, curation. Hmm. So these are these are previously known sites. You guys aren't doing survey for new things as part of this or. No, we're basically going to a couple spots. They're doing ongoing work. So part of the interdisciplinary nature of this is creating these living museums in the sea. And these are a way to protect the cultural heritage and the biological environments. And so that's why we go down there with uh, geologists and marine biologists is many endangered corals really like iron. And so you can like refound coral colonies with iron object. So one thing that we also do, they do in the project, is oftentimes like part of these living museums as they're creating these heritage sites where they get plaques to get on the National Register and they become major dive spots. They'll like buy cannons and like objects that are the same age as the ship and then like bring them out to the site. And like part of the plaque is like these cannons are not part of the actual ship. And they'll like make a little ring of cannons like around the area. And so you're so taking not, the, the little idol off the thing in the temple of Indiana Jones and replacing it with a little bag, essentially. No. So they're the cannons that like are that were picked up by, you know, like looters and pirates and they try to sell them at a dive shop. So we're like reintroducing them back in. So you'd be like 
yeah, replacing the Indiana Jones bag of sand with the monkey. So bring it back home. Okay. So reverse. Yeah. Yes. Cool. That reverse. Part. And that's part. And part of that's experimentation, right? Like the, the ecologists and geologists like do that for experimentation and like preservation at the same point is my assumption. Yes. So yeah. Cause these shipwrecks are like major marine habitats. So a couple of years ago, they had sunk, purposely sunk a U.S. ship off the coast of Florida. There's a video of it. Apparently, it was a shit show because it didn't go down properly. So oh, it shit. flipped, it capsized, and then went down, which was not what it was supposed to do. And then they tried to lift it up, and that didn't go very well either. So they like tried to tie these giant air balloons to one side in hopes that it would like raise and flip the ship. The video on YouTube is is hilarious. Did you just see Charlie's just sitting there like this is never going to work? And then, uh, but eventually a swell came in and the tides flipped the ship and it and it settled where it was supposed to. Because the purpose is, in addition to curating, maintaining, and advancing these maritime ecosystems, recording the cultural heritage, it also creates tourism, which is really what the Dominicans want. So it also uh, stimulates local economy. And that has become interesting for some of the projects. So one of the things that's often talked about and that we're, I'm in prep for is that these sites are still active recreational diving spots. So as we'll be working and as they've worked in the past, there will be randoms that will show up diving and interrupt your work. And so that has included, um, there's a one of the students has a funny story of where they're doing photogrammetry and they still have to have targets on the ground because some of those sand beds are extensive, right? And we talked about earlier with photogrammetry that you need at least 60% coverage overlap between photos. And one of the best ways to stitch those together is to put targets down. Then some fucking scuba diver just like came down, like picked up one of the targets and was swimming off. And like the students had to like chase him and like grab him by the fins and like point like that's fucking ours. Give that back, you know? And just like, goofy, like and they're and they're confused because sometimes you know the the dive teams won't they don't tell the people or they're not aren't notified that the archaeologists are like the scientists are there so there's like you know about two dozen scientists underwater like working on the site trying to uh do all the various tasks so like while we're sitting there measuring artifacts and everything the biologists are down there they're doing species samples and species counts and identifying the plants and corals you have someone doing photogrammetry of the entire site to encapsulate all of that then you have the geologists down there trying to do their own stuff so it gets pretty busy like the videos that they do down there are just like really cool and like makes me feel safe like this i should have announced this I'm not a huge fan of open water. <laughs> like, I like to be able to see the bottom. As long as I can see the bottom, I'm fine. So the yeah, Caribbean's I, great. I'm trepidatious when it comes to like what David's saying, like, oh, just go to the Aleutian Islands and just like, no, one, there's great whites and Greenland sharks in there and, and orcas. I've seen blackfish. Salmon sharks too. And salmon sharks. And, but like also the visibility is super low and you can't see the bottom. And it's like, that's terrifying. Caribbean, like <laughs> we're only working like 30, 40 feet. Stuff all up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can see the bottoms there. It's like, I should be fine. And like with a larger group of people, like you're one of six seals for a great white shark. Like, you know, your chances of surviving are 15%. 
Just don't be the slowest swimmer, as they say. Or, but I'm like, I'm like worried this weekend. It's just like me and one student, and we're going out there surveying. It's like me and her, and like she can outswim me really quick, and I'm definitely the fatter seal out of the bunch. It's like knowing me, it's going to be like Jaws three, Jaws's revenge, where there's going to be some random great white down there prowling the seven seas. We're going to clip that for when Carlton doesn't come back. Yeah. <laughs> I was just thinking about like the terrestrial version of that. Is that's like coming, someone coming onto your site and like pulling out like corner pins yeah. or things in the ground. I mean, which is, I think is easier to do on land because you can talk to people and be like, hey, hey, hey. But how do you communicate that down below? You can't, you right? You, you, just, have to, yeah, you have to rely on people up top. So there will be people watching the boats. There are dive buoys up above on the surface of the water, letting people know that that's... Um, one, there's divers in the water, but two, all these living museums in the sea have these marker buoys and there are plaques underwater that they place. But one of the kind of funnier things is like they have photographs of like they're moving these cannons into place. Well, the deeper you go, the lighter things become. So there's this amazing photo, amazing photograph of like Charlie, Sam and a couple other students, these four adults like moving this giant fucking 1200 pound cannon over their shoulders, like fins off, like walking on the seabed, to like place it where it needs to go. Is it like Jack Sparrow walking underneath the pretty much with the ship over you know, pretty much. So yeah, the whole thing, that's what I'm excited to do. Cause it's, it's mostly for me as, as I'm doing this class, I'm like thinking of like, okay, this is how I do it on land and prepping for when I get in the water. And there's that added having to watch your oxygen uh, your buoyancy has been problematic for me because I can take such big breaths that I'll just rise, especially with the vaping habit where I take deep breaths naturally. I'll just do – and I'll just fucking start floating let it go and start dropping. So I'm like trying to manage my breathing while I'm down there at the same time. And, but the craziest part is just how fucking quiet it is. It's like you're in there and there's there's no music. There's no talking. Just there aren't any trails in the background to listen to. You're just You're just there. Stuck with your own thoughts? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so, I, yeah, all three of us got real quiet after that. <laughs> like the water all like the water all around Long Island is just like brown or green. It's just not good looking water. And like that's what I always like knew as water. I went to Jamaica when I was like four, so I don't I don't remember what the Caribbean looks like. But I imagine that water is a little more inviting, but currently the air I've seen the Pacific too, which reflects blue, but it's kind of dark when you go in it. So yeah. at least in California. So I, I'm not a fan of open water myself. Well, see, and I've, I've done, I've done like stuff in the keys. I've gone like snorkeling and whatnot. And you can see like to an edge to a certain point, but I could see the, the ground, but there is always that, like, is there something lurking in the, the background that I'm missing? Yeah. Kind of that, thing that it, Miss me with that. <laughs> yeah. It's going to yeah. be a no for me, dog. No, I'm just kidding. I, I would love to do that. And Carlton and I are going to start a company doing that. Yeah. It's not, it's, not it's, yeah <laughs> it's not super. It, it's, it's challenging in a different way, but like it, very much like historic archaeology, once you're in the component that you know you're at, you know, there's nothing above or below it generally. Right. So like once you found the ship, you just need to map where the objects are and then get them out. And at the Dominican Republic, it's a 50-50 split. So, so you don't remove everything. So the rules down there are fucking crazy. So like there's still like a rampant problem with treasure hunters. And they're like very much into the local economy. So treasure hunters in the Caribbean? Yeah. You wouldn't Hurts? say. Still still pretty bad. 
there's interesting articles online of these treasure hunters like going after Charlie and his work and trying to discredit him because like Charlie doesn't take anything. Like he gives the 50 to the museum and it takes 50 back to IU to be curated and then go back to the DR. There is an issue in the DR though where like objects have a knack of disappearing. And so that's problematic. And then also once these sites are found, there are some rather wealthy individuals around the world that are really interested in Taino archaeology and, you know, the local indigenous folks of the Dominican and uh, Haiti, as well as like Age of Sail. And they pay big bucks to pay some of the dive shops or like some people around to go and like loot these sites. Mm -hmm. And so like the cultural heritage preservation is such an issue. And it's like one of those weird, there's an added layer to it where there's a UNESCO um, charter that what they're trying to do so like france and spain and england have signed on to that that any of their shipwrecks have to go like all of it go back but then like all the countries in the americas are like fuck you that's our gold like no 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 no. the ships are yours but the shit on them the the precious things that you want do not actually belong to you and the united states is trying to stay out of this because there's like you know there's a bunch of shipwrecks off of florida and there's some really weird maritime laws where like for a long time, there's the Abandoned Shipwreck Act or the Abandoned Boat Act. Basically, if like you left your boat and someone found it, that person, that's now their boat. And that was used in the 60s and 70s. Like These treasure hunters would go into a dive site and be like, the boat's abandoned. This is now my boat. And then like, <laughs> like claim to it. Like 250 years boat. later. <laughs> yeah, no, they fucking do this. And like it happened. Like People would do that and they would take all the treasure and shit. Like, it's crazy. Like the laws that are, are in the way of a lot of this stuff and that like trying to do this this work is is interesting because it's still not going back to the indigenous, you know, the home countries at all. But that's where this difference in the living museums in the sea is like getting them recognized, making them protected and getting photogrammetry and counting all the objects. And then each object gets an ID. It gets a tag. Mm-hmm. And if it ends up on land, like it's flagged. It's supposed to be flagged, but there's um, that whole layer of trying to like just cultural preservation to it. And it's one of those things where my guess is that you, you obviously don't take everything out. You might take some important pieces and elements of it because I assume that the curation crisis or the, the lack of facilities also applies to underwater not stuff the DR, don't. <laughs> not <laughs> the DR. Uh, space for no. days? Well, a lot of these shipwrecks... Mostly what's left is like maybe the keel and iron objects and like all the good stuff has been looted a long time ago. Uh-huh. So there's like ballast weights that you can figure out the position that are in the holes of these ships. So like a lot of ships would have like 20 fucking anchors in them, like two that you might actually use. And like your bottom of your ship is basically just filled with trash as ballast. So a lot of metal. Huh. And so you end up like shipwrecks. Now you'll find maybe the keel like 15 anchors in a square some like ballast balls <laughs> some like cannonballs like and you like you build the the skeleton of the ship just based on the position of these ballasts like the the iron material that's left but like anything that has like ship identifiers like plaques bells those are gone so it's basically stuff people couldn't pull up are not seen as valuable hmm. so but there can- are projects like the captain kid ship that was identified by IU, that was a big one. The name was like the the Queda Merchant. Yeah. And that one's really interesting because the ship itself, so they found it. They found the upper hole of the structure and many of the the cargo hold had a bunch of stuff. But one of the big parts of it, I believe, I'll have to double check, but there's a ship 
that they recovered that was built by like one specific Indian shipyard that was still operating building ships the way they used to up until like 10 years ago when they stopped. But it's the way they like merged the uh, planks together was highly specific Hmm. and made for very tight seal. And I believe it was Captain Kidd's. Know that name. Yeah. And it was lost, but I might be totally wrong. But the reason why it was lost is like it wrecked and the crew was like, anyone that takes a look at this ship will know it's our ship because the the way they built it was so unique. There was no other ship in the Caribbean that was like that. So they like basically set it on fire and threw it down river to try to get away from it. So they could come up with a different like, oh, no, we're just rum runners or something, you know, Hmm. so they wouldn't get branded as pirates. Hmm. Well, on that note, we will end this segment and we'll talk more about something in the next segment. And we're back to episode 151 of Life Runs Podcast. David, you had mentioned earlier that you've been to the Dominican Republic before and I didn't I didn't know that. What were you down no, there no, for? No. I, I did not go, but I had many friends who went and it was my freshman year of college. None of them listened to this podcast because you'll about to find out why. <laughs> it was like a church group on campus that they all went to the Dominican Republic and like to get money to go to the Dominican Republic to do charity work down there. I think they were building a church or a school. They had to petition their family members and ask for money to take this trip for a bus of 50 white kids from fucking Tennessee to go down to the DR to do like live with these like kids and like do church stuff and build a school or it was a school or a church. It was something with a roof. Anyway, like I was like, they were like, do you want to come? And I was like, no, I don't want to ask my aunts for money to like help me go do a mission trip. And I wasn't really a member of the church. I just went with them because it was something to do. And anyway, they go down there and they like take pictures with all these kids that were like clearly impoverished and like posting all this stuff. And like they build this roof to get in there. I see videos. Then this is early Instagram days, mostly Facebook, swimming in pools at the hotel, having a good time. And then like they came back and I was like, so how'd it go? He's like, oh, it's great, man. Like we got so many kids. I think we touched so many people. And like they, for some reason, they had to rebuild the whole school and the whole roof. Like as soon as all the American kids left. And he's like, I guess we could have just donated all that money to them anyway. And they could have just done it from the beginning. And I was like, you don't say. (laughs) <laughs> you just want to go down there and take Facebook pictures so you could look good for God on your Facebook, dude. Like, that's all those are. And, like, I told you that from the beginning. And he was like, I just wish we could have done more. And I was like, there's nothing more you could have done but have a nice vacation. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's some the great mission trips out there. But, like, yeah. that really irked me. <laughs> I mean, that's what a lot of those mission trips are. It's just, yeah, makes, makes the people go out and feel good when all those the people they're trying to help could – do it better themselves. Just give the money. <laughs> and we're not, not, I'm not saying all of them. There's probably people who go out there and do do good work. Great missionaries. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Just, just not that one. Just, <laughs> not, just not that one case study. Tennessee. I did my cultural borders. anthropology undergrad paper on how that mission trip didn't work. Uh, <laughs> there was a class called, it was literally, because in undergrad you had to take two upper division culturals, two upper division archaeology, and two upper uh, biological and my the only upper division cultural offered that semester was refugee and migrant children. So Oof. I took that as a lot about Syria, a lot about Mexico, and a lot about uh, Latin America. And yeah, learned a lot. And like for my term paper, it was like talk about refugee. And, my, and it was like because it was after the hurricane or the earthquake and the DR. And I wrote my paper on that and I got an A. I think she gave nice. me a to everybody. 
Yeah. That's a anyway. That's a heavy, heavy class. I feel like a lot of my cultural anth classes ended up being like, let's take like the saddest subject about humans and then let's talk about it for ten weeks. For yeah, I don't want weeks. children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be endless amounts of mass migrations in the next thirty years, and I'm just I'm not trying to have a kid weigh me down and all that. I will, however, racketeer a bunch of bottled water and sell it to kids at a high price, but not my kids. <laughs> that is the official stance of a life and ruins podcast we no, will, I will not do that. I, I watched a one there was a documentary they showed in one of my classes is like what the u.s looks like in 50 years and it's like year 2030 vegas runs out of water dun 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 one of my favorite talks ever so i had i had uh eric give a presentation of the fraternity at university of wyoming and it did the title of the talk was like where will you spend spring break in 50 years and it was like really weird because the kids wanted to hate it but they also appreciate it because eric's like so global warming exists he's talking to like a bunch of like libertarian republican kids from wyoming he's like this is where the water line is going to be so this is where you should invest in properties like that's how he got to them he's like if this is this is real but like we can make this profitable for you so like actually had them sit down and listen to it but they wanted to be mad but they're also like but we could invest in these properties in like Kansas, which will be Oceanside a little bit, you know, just like, <laughs> so they were like, Oh, we never thought about the the way to take advantage of this disastrous situation. Sell uh, your stuff in New York, Manhattan, Long Island, sell all your, your land. Yeah, yeah. Buy, buy property in Salina, Kansas and just wait for the floods <laughs> and then you can build condos. Don't like how in the people West. in New Mexico and Arizona and Nevada just constantly not stressed about water. You can't even collect rainwater in California, I've been told, like legally. It's no. against the law. Dude, the Rio Grande near Texas, near El Paso, like has been dry forever. Like water yeah. just does not make it to the border anymore. And they're just shitting out kids left and right. And they're like, we're fine. <laughs> well, and Phoenix like, is like a booming so is Vegas. It's like on a crazy boom of people living there. And it's like, you can't even drink the fucking tap water in Phoenix. They got, they have a water store that you have to go to, to buy water. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It'll just give you diarrhea. No offense to people having children out there, but like, just why? Stop. <laughs> like, <laughs> please. It stresses me out. Well, a lot of it has to do with like the, the water. Right? Probably so way off. The treaty, the treaty. Yeah, I know. But the treaty they made with Mexico, the way they did it was just happened to be like a really wet year when they wrote it. So like the amount of water, that percentage of water that was supposed to get to Mexico, like it was basically predicated on the U.S. gets so many gallons of water before mm -hmm. it gets to Mexico. And since they did it on a year with exceedingly high rainfall, that metric is just fucked because like Mexico will never get to see that. So like it just and then we, of course, we divert the Colorado all the way out to L.A. Yeah, well, but Which we could no stop anyway. Yeah, we could stop the Colorado in Colorado. And Vegas doesn't exist. Arizona doesn't exist. New Mexico doesn't exist. Like those places don't really exist without that. Yeah. yeah. It's fucking crazy to me. Colorado can just damn it up and just be like, all right, goodbye. I'm calling it. But anyway, yeah, so that was my story about the DR. I have not been, I've been to Jamaica as a kid. Probably wouldn't go back because I remember watching Shamu at the nursery. Um, and that was all I remember of Jamaica. What? <laughs> Like what nursery? What type what, of nursery? What Shamu? Jamaican SeaWorld? Is there one? No, like we went to Jamaica when I was a kid. I think my parents like got to, you know, remember when travel agents were a thing? They got like a huge discount at some travel agent and they're like, You should go to Jamaica. This very impoverished country where they co completely need your tourism to complete keep feeding the poverty. And they went 
and like dropped me off at this nursery at the near the hotel or in the hotel to like watch me while they went and did Jamaica stuff. And I remember watching Shem or no Free Willy, excuse me, Free Willy every day. And the nurse was uh, Jamaican. That, is that kosher? Anymore? Wait, I don't. I don't think that's like something that happens. Free Willy did not take place in Jamaica though. Like it took place in some like made up theme park. I think no, in California. Like as, so he's at watching, the nursery, he was we watching put a it on VA, TV. Free Willy oh, yeah. into the thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it was like, that's all I remember. And there was like a life-size chess set. I remember playing with that one time. I remember the ocean and that was it. And my dad well, got offered weed on the bus. I promise that when we go as the three of us, me and Connor will put you in a different nursery. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put you in a different daycare. <laughs> catch me anytime we're in the Caribbean, you catch me at whatever the bar is or the tavern, having a good time bartering in Spanish. For our passage back to Spain, me and Connor will come back and just see you. Like me and Connor will come back and see you taking pictures of your feet and auctioning them off. <laughs> mis pies, mis pies. <laughs> Cinco peso. No, um, if I go down there, I'm never coming back. <laughs> I'm going to turn into Jack Sparrow. <laughs> How much is this property? I, I don't mean to be like a colonial fuck, but like the Dominican Republic property. This is pretty colonial. I'm down to get a bungalow. I want a sailboat. <laughs> I want it. it has. Oh, I almost said something very bad. Good, good. <laughs> Let's just draw up a treaty of tortoises as round two electric boogaloo. <laughs> and I get everything left of Cuba. Excuse me, right of Cuba. You get everything left. Some of these houses, dude, aren't so bad. Like 350000 for two bed, two bath with 1,500 square feet. Do you have beachfront? Probably not. Don't don't tempt me, Frodo. Are you going down to the Caribbean, <laughs> Carlton, to purchase property? Do you remember when we talked about me wanting to become a boat person? We did. I'm just saying the next slippery slope after buying property in the Caribbean is an encomienda. So you need to let <laughs> <laughs> you dip your toes it's into. Either, it's either like you're start dealing drugs, like you're you're a narco. <laughs> yeah, that one's. Like you're not going to get stopped at a. Can we talk about Columbus? <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to apologize for your previous comments on Columbus? No. I think, I, I think you have a, this is your space to apologize to the world for being what a am co- I, Columbus <laughs> apologist, man. What am I supposed to apologize for? You said that Columbus wasn't so bad. He connected all the worlds together. I did not say he <laughs> Yes, you did. I said he discovered America, sure, in like in many ways, but not necessarily it was the first to discover it. I never, I don't believe we could roll the tape. If I said he wasn't so bad, then lock me up, dude. You War tribunal. Would... <laughs> I think it was, it was like, a... yeah, I think it was your glorification of discovery that was a little, a little questionable. We haven't, we oh, haven't you guys it. made it out to be that. I was just saying like, he, yeah, keep, opened keep up, he opened up <laughs> the Western world to the new world. And in some ways he made the new world open up to the old world. That's what I would say. It, that doesn't he, mean it's a good thing. Did he make the new world have, better because he connected to them? Is that what you're saying? According to the Portuguese, yes. But according to me, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not. Yeah. And it's what funny up? you said that, Carlton, because the Portuguese language, am I right? Oh, that, yeah, the SHA comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not talk about colonialism here and just think about how the, so many people got to hear the beautiful Portuguese language because of it. It was just like, Jesus Christ. She was Which telling is, me she like, everyone hates Portuguese because how it sounds, but she's like, everyone hates Portuguese, but the Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> Brazil would rather speak something different, apparently. 
Well, that's a big issue because it's more like Brazilian Portuguese speakers than like Portugal Portuguese speakers. And they're trying to tell the Brazilians like what proper Portuguese is. I'm like, fuck you. There's more of us than you. We'll tell you what real Portuguese is. We're the captains now. I guess that's true because there's more American English speakers than English English speakers. And there's more Mexican Spanish speakers than Spanish speakers. It's almost like the new world got colonized. (laughs) You don't say. Three major powers. (laughs) You were mentioning stuff about Columbus. Let me, I have the book here. Yeah, what was the book? I was going to ask you what the book what is. Uh, was. The, the Four Voyages of Christopher Columbus. Also, his name was Cristoforo Colombo, not Christopher Columbus. Also, John Cabot, we, we call him, his name is Johannes Caboto, or Cabo, Cab, Caboda, something like that. I can't remember what it was. He was Italian, but we're like, he's John Cabot. <laughs> and he went down the, the thing, and then it was the other guy too. With a ship full of gabagool. With a ship full of- <laughs> Johannes Caboto or Caboda. I can't remember. It was A or A at the end of it. But yeah, he did like the Hudson area, like up north. Like anyway, all those people wanted to sail and like explore and like get paid to do it. And all the monarchs were like, we already have like eight people doing that. Like go to Canada. And he's like, all right. And then he went to the freaking English crown and they're like, who's this Italian guy? Just go on, just give him some money. And that's how John Cabot like did his thing. And Henry Hudson, all those guys. But have uh, you read Christopher Columbus's journal? That's what. Yeah, okay, that's what I was trying to get to. But is it's that his whack. actual journal? Like I've read this is, this is the Four Voyages. It has excerpts from it, but it doesn't have. I haven't read his like journal journal. Oh, I have like the full thing. And that unless this is, is his journal, fuck, it is not like a good rendition. And like that's one of the things that the Spanish and Portuguese always try to distance themselves from. Is like those early conquistadors were just pieces of shit even in their own right it wasn't like oh at the context of the time it's like no they were bad people for their time like in at least in the stuff i was reading they went back to spain and they were like hey this columbus guy that you let govern this island is like it's getting wild over here you need to send some people they they locked him up took him back to prison and he like he wrote in his journals for sure that like stuff about like the women are fair and like you can make them good courtesans and things like that. And it's just like, that's how he was thinking. Whereas the other guys were like, we're supposed to like look for Japan, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you have to be a little like fucked in the head to think that you're going to go like across and like, yeah. Yeah. Like you, yeah, you, you're a sociopath. I don't know if I would, I don't yeah, know. He went, to, he went to jail, like during his <laughs> governancy of the Dominican, like, Spaniards were like, this guy is a fucking piece of shit. And like, he was jailed in Santa Domingo for like two years before he was like sailed back to Spain to have trial where he was acquitted. But like, you know, that whole thing. And it's the same thing with Cortez. Like Cortez wasn't supposed to interact with the Spanish. He was supposed to like make contact with the Maya. He didn't. He just went north, landed, went and did some shit at Tenochtitlan, realized that, yeah, Cortez. Well, that, that's a and whole other he, thing, too. Then he, is. like, some guy from the shore that they left there, like, ran back. was like, hey, they're looking for you. So he had to go back to the shore, set up a town, create a kangaroo court with, with the provincial mayors and shit, and have them draw up new orders from the crown so he can go take over the Aztecs. Like, he, it, the whole thing is 
fucking wild. So he, he made a second government. <laughs> yeah, he basically like there's there's something in Spanish law where if they had a town and they could speak on behalf of the crown. So he like he made his own town, elected his own leaders, and then was like, I Very beseech great. you yeah. to make new orders. And like, what were they gonna say? No. Like the whole <laughs> thing was just a farce. Like that's and the same thing with the guy that went to fucking Peru. Like all of those guys were just not good people. Pizarro, yeah. Well, like with fucking uh, Cortez, I, I was talking to this Mexican guy about this this weekend. He said that like, or it was, he's I've heard this a million times, like, and it's just part of the history. All the Aztecs were super expansionist. Like they were like going all over and like kidnapping people and like making like, I know this gets into the black legend stuff too, but like everybody around the Aztecs hated the Aztecs. Well, so when Cortez got there, he was like, wait, so where's this big, they're like the, the giant city where they keep ki- killing us. Like, <laughs> let's go. So all the indigenous tribes like around him, like allied with him and you, they make it seem like it was these 20 Spaniards kidnapped the emperor. But like, no, he went and rallied every single group around them and was like, help me get this guy. <laughs> and they like went down all of that. Like you're saying though, Carlton was without the King and queen of Spain being like, sure. He was on the run because he like also when he left, he was in prison, wasn't supposed to go. And he basically just snuck out of jail, got on a ship. was like, all right, guys, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. And just dipped out. Like he wasn't even supposed to leave the island. He was supposed to go stand <laughs> trial back in Spain. And he basically just Cortez or Columbus Cortez. He just like hot rodded a fucking sailboat and sh- just left to go like <laughs> Like the dude escapes prison, and the next time you see him, he's like, "I've conquered an entire territory <laughs> in Mexico." And they're just like, "What?" He's like, "It's fine though. I set up a town. They allowed me to do it. Like we're good. I also have, like, the whole thing is wild." It's by the book, <laughs> it's, like, it's just uh, absolutely wild. Before we go, I was watching a, a YouTube thing about there. There's this whole YouTube drama. This one guy who made like in defense of Columbus, and like just saying like the, a lot of recent stuff comes out that's just like fuck columbus fuck columbus and they get all the facts wrong and like yes fuck columbus but there's also sometimes where you just can't you can't just make up information about columbus thinking the world was shaved like a parrot shit he mentioned that once in one paragraph anyway then another youtube response came out saying that he was completely wrong and he's being a white supremacist then he made a rebuttal video saying hey i'm sorry i made these points wrong but here's what i was trying to say and that guy was like no you're still not getting it and came out put stuff Bottom line, the end of the story, the the main guy who like did the rebuttals that like I I I'm on his, not his side, but I think he's telling the most accurate history here. Is this is this um, the, the Columbus apologist or the Columbus this is prosecutor? The, he, I think he was he's Argentinian and he's like he's saying that the guy who was defending Columbus is just completely wrong, though he means well. But he's saying that like people always use the argument, well, the transatlantic slave trade came later. Columbus didn't start it. Like that was a later thing by the Dutch and the Portuguese and yada, yada. And then the British. But the guy was like, no, do you know who the first person was to take a human from the Americas and traffic them back to Spain against their will? That would be Christopher Columbo. And he was like, <laughs> who, they, who, do, who went back and brought another three indigenous people likely against their will or clearly tricked them into saying, get on the ship and come across this ocean which you've never done before come on over here guess what that's called trafficking a human being and they're like he started the transatlantic slave trade no matter like what you say though he wasn't like the ceo of the company it just like it began that idea of oh and that's what encomiendas were too it's like you get a plot of land and like that's why they all wanted to go there and if there were indigenous peoples on that land oh you get to do with them what you please and of course that became serfdom and then quickly slavery 
So it's and, also, and, and Columbus's diary, like when he meets the Taino, he, like in his notes, he's like, I can take these people over with a hundred men. Like that's like his first thought. Like when he comes <laughs> back on the second voyage, he brings like 17 ships full of Spaniards. Like he, his intent is we're taking this place for ourselves. It wasn't like exploration and like a humanitarian, like trying to explore the world. He gets, he gets there and he's like, Oh, these people are, Oh, Oh, he's just like salivating at the mouth. together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah not a not the not the greatest guy but that's like it's just business and like that business makes you ruthless you know and like is that what the nazis said during the business just makes it it's the guy in pirates of the caribbean as the ship's blowing up he's like it's just good business and it's like he's being eviscerated by a pirate fleet but it's like business makes you do crazy cutthroat shit. Not saying it's, it's just, good. They were very, very greedy people and human lives had very little value to them. <laughs> it's it's frankly remarkable how much they devalued lives. It's like, whoa. Oh, but part of this is like, yeah, I mean, just to tie this up, like we are part of this project this summer is to look for one of Columbus's ships. Um, during one of his voyages. And then also this has been tied up into the Horses Humane Societies project where we're actually looking for horses and horse remains in uh, Haiti and Dominican Republic to start getting the genetics of those, like the first horses that arrived. So that's like this whole thing that's been happening this week as a result of that science paper. It's just like, oh yeah, we know there's horses Thanks. down there. And so we're interested in how that happened. So It's a horse graveyard. I can't get away from these fucking horses. <laughs> I'm trying to go down below the depths and I'm still horses are, are trotting behind me. Well, like review podcast. Thank you for listening. Something. Yeah. Columbus did do wrong. He did not do Columbus. Columbus was wrong. Here you go. We're in it with that. Official stance. Official stance of a life in ruins podcast. David finally said it. it was a dude. Finally said it. I think dude. we discovered America in the sense of the modern historical world. Just, just stop. But, just, just, just. But stop. did he? Just, just stop. Did he have the right to to ship humans across the ocean and build a jail and burn it down himself? No. I think that's the best we're going to get. Okay. Uh, be, please be sure if you're uh, listening to us on the all, all shows feed, uh, please, please, please subscribe to our podcast on our own show. You're downloading our show directly from our feed helps us get advertisers and sponsors. We're currently working on that. So really appreciate everyone that uh, listens. Be sure to rate and review the podcast. And with that, we are out. Almost wasn't good. All right, if you've made it this far, you know what time it is. It is time for Connor's witty joke. Connor, what do you have for us this week? Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Why didn't the Admiral buy a new hat? Wait. It's a trap. He was worried about capsizing. (laughs) 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 That's pretty good. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland,
Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.